If you're new here today, welcome. You've landed in our fourth week of our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And we are in the section of Jesus' sermon that where he shows us how to live distinctly different lives as salt and light to the world. And we become salt and light when we do the right thing that God commanded us to do, but to do it with the right heart that God desires us to be. And today we are looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 36, where Jesus talks about adultery, lust, and divorce. And if this is your first time at Chapel Hill today and you're interested to find out more about the Christian faith, welcome. It's great that you can join us today. But I just want to say that this is not normally where we start the conversation about the Christian faith. We will normally start at the ABCs of the Christian faith, start at exploring questions like, is there more to life than this? Who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? The passage today is really the XYZ of the Christian faith. So you kind of come at the end of the conversation. But if that's you, we would love to chat to you about Christianity by going back to the start of the conversation with our Explore course. But today is still a great day to be at Chapel Hill because Jesus will talk about the beauty and divine design of marriage. And it's the divine design of marriage that is actually a significant way of understanding God's loving relationship with you. I also want to acknowledge that the issues that Jesus raised in this passage are real and difficult issues for many of you. Because this is in the realm of theory. This perhaps has been your experience. The experience of the brokenness in this world that has played out in the relationships around you. So the difficulty with today's text is not so much understanding the words of Jesus, because he speaks quite clearly and plainly. The difficulty with today's text is our prejudices or our pain of our past experience that shape what we think about these issues. So the challenge that we face as God's people seeking to live out the kingdom of God is not to let the prejudices or our pain of our past experiences shape us, but to let God speak for himself, to take the posture of a student and to sit humbly under his word to shape and direct us to live distinct, salty, light-filled lives. And so that is the task this morning. Jesus says from verse 27, You have heard that it was said you have not committed adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus' disciples have been taught the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. But Jesus now teaches his disciples that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. I think most of us can agree, whether you're a Christian or not, most of us will agree that adultery is damaging. It's degrading. It breaks marriages apart. It destroys family and it destroys churches. But Jesus now teaches his disciples that the true meaning of the seventh commandment has been pointing to a more deeper and fundamental problem of the heart. That lust is the seed of adultery. Jesus is obviously saying that adultery doesn't just happen. Adultery is the last stage of a long journey of lust. Now, it's important to note that Jesus is not condemning looking at a woman or a man or to notice that a woman or a man is attractive. Jesus is condemning anyone who looks lustfully. There is difference between looking and lusting. 
even though lusting starts with looking. You can look and still be flee from avoiding lust. Maybe a helpful distinction to say Jesus is not talking about noticing beauty. Jesus is talking about lingering fantasy. Jesus is talking about imaginary sex with another person. Jesus' words has profound relevance to our current world that is steeped in pornography. The stats are showing increasingly, particularly young boys as young as 11 years old are engaging with hardcore pornography. Research has shown that pornography changes our attitudes and our behaviors, that we begin to think that we can have sex without a relationship. The world of psychology has spent some time researching the effects of pornography that it has on the brain. One thing that they are noticing is that there is a part of your brain that contains mirror neurons. What your mirror neurons do is that they mirror behavior that you are watching. So that when you are watching a sad movie, you cry when you see someone crying. Your mirror neurons are imitating the experience of the person that you are watching. Science tell us that mirror neurons is as if the observer were acting. What psychology has discovered is what Jesus has been saying for a millennia. You can commit adultery in your heart. So why does Jesus see lust as so destructive? Our culture might push back and say there is no real harm if it remains in one's own private thoughts and imagination. Lust is destructive because it objectifies. When you lust, you are treating a person as an object to be used for your own selfish desires instead of treating a person with dignity, worth, value, and honor as one made in the image of God. Lust is destructive because it dehumanizes people. Lust takes takes a human being and turns them into an object to be used. The problem is not beauty. The problem is objectifying beauty. God created beauty for us to admire and therefore glorify God. But we, in our sin, we objectify beauty for us to use and to satisfy ourselves. That is why Jesus instructs his followers to have zero tolerance towards temptations of lust. Have a look with me from verse 29. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is a time when the Sermon on Mount gets its hooks into you. It's one of those verses where you go, what does he mean by that? Is he serious? Does he mean gouge out your eye literally? Chop off your hand. Again, this is the brilliance of Jesus as a master teacher. On the one hand, he's pointing out the absurdity of an outside-in approach to change. Do you think externally gouging out your eye and cutting off your hand will really deal with the problem of lust in your heart? No. He's challenging the absurdity of dealing with your lust with external means on the one hand. But on the other hand, Jesus is pointing out to the radical need to cut ourselves off from the things that would cultivate and grow the seed of lust in our hearts. Because lust will damage your souls and pull us away from God and put us at risk of facing eternal judgment. So if you're wise, you will deal aggressively with lust to not tolerate with it. 
Dealing seriously and aggressively with lust is better than being mastered by lust, is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not after the mutilation of the body. Jesus is after the mortification of sin, putting sin to death. Because Jesus is relentlessly pursuing inward-out transformation, inner-heart transformation. And when that happens, we would relentlessly put to death sin as if our lives depended on it. That is what Jesus is trying to provoke us to see in this metaphor. He's saying in the most vivid way, if you don't kill sin, sin will kill you. If you don't kill sin, sin will kill you. That is why lust is so destructive. Jesus' teaching on adultery and purity leads naturally to the question of divorce. Read with me from verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus' disciples had been taught that all you need to have a divorce was to give a certificate of divorce, that is, to do it legally. And so the Old Testament law at least said, keep it civil, keep it nice, keep it legal. And many Jewish rabbis interpreted that requirement of the divorce certificate to fulfill all sorts of grounds for divorce. The rabbinic school of Hillel interpreted this term to include the widest possible way to also include a wife's most trivial offence. If she burnt her husband's food, she got a monobrow, if she let herself go, no joke, the list goes on. And this was taught at a prestigious rabbinic school in Jesus' time. So just imagine that the modern equivalent would be imagining that that was taught at St. Andrews or Scots College. Jesus' disciples had heard that these things were justifiable grounds for divorce, so long as you did it legally civilly with a certificate of divorce. So Jesus goes on to teach in a culture that has a low view of marriage and a flippant view of divorce. He says, but I tell you, verse 32, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus, he says, there is only one grounds for divorce and that is sexual immorality. The word there is poneia, which is a junk draw term for all types of sexual infidelity. So the exception of sexual infidelity is broader than just adultery, but it narrows down the grounds for divorce to exclude reasons like she burnt the dinner, she let herself go, or we've fallen out of love. Jesus narrows down to uphold a high view of marriage and to make the point that you obey the law not by giving each other a divorce certificate, but you obey the law by keeping, upholding, and protecting your marriage covenant. Jesus is saying that divorce is not civilly, nicely breaking a social contract. Divorce is violently violating a divine covenant. Marriage is not a social legal contract. Marriage is divinely joining of two people together in the covenant of marriage. So even though Jesus does spell out an exception where divorce is permissible, the thrust of what Jesus is saying is not go around fishing for exceptions in the law to find acceptable ways to divorce. Instead, he says, devote that energy to protecting, guarding, resolving, reconciling, renewing your marriage. Although God permits divorce and remarriage on the grounds of sexual immorality, Abandonment, as Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 7, and abuse, God is never pleased about divorce. 
There are cases where divorce is permissible, but it's never desirable. That is the attitude that Jesus is teaching us to have. And we're not going to spell out all the types of different scenarios that could lead to divorce, because when I tried to map it out for myself as a pastoral preparation, I realized as I looked at this flow chart that I created, I just saw how our human hearts would be fixated with trying to figure out all kinds of different exceptions. Jesus is trying to actually stop that kind of behavior. God's law was not given in order to find all the given exceptions for divorce. The law was given to show God's ideal for marriage. The only other additional thing I'll say about verse 32 is that it's clear that Jesus is saying that to divorce in order to remarry someone already in mind is clearly at its heart an act of adultery. If you want to discuss more about what the Bible says about divorce and remarriage, I'm happy to sit down with you and discuss further. But don't go away from today's sermon spending your time flipping through the Bible to work out what is permissible and not permissible for divorce and remarriage. Jesus is saying if you're married, spend that time with your wife or husband. Spend that time to enrich and guard your marriage. Jesus calls us to not act like lawyers and legalists in our marriage. Even though you might be married to a lawyer, Jesus calls us to be his disciples, to cherish marriage, to uphold the sacred bond of marriage. The Pharisees, they were fixated on law around divorce certificates because they treated the Mosaic provision for divorce as a command. When the Pharisees brought up this issue of divorce uh, in Matthew 19, they asked Jesus, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. Jesus corrects the Pharisees. Divorce was not a command. It was a concession for what? For their hard hearts. Jesus saying divorce is never preferred. It's never celebrated. It's never good. It's bad. Not so much that you're a bad person. It's bad because it's broken. The fundamental problem beneath sexual immorality or abandonment or abuse or any kinds of reasons why people end up in divorce is because of having hardened hearts, unrepentant hearts. That is what we need to look out for in marriage. Jesus is saying, don't look at the exceptions in the law, look at your hearts. And I'll come back to this at the end. But we can see that Jesus wants to restore his disciples to a high view of marriage. Jesus spoke into a culture that had a low view of marriage and a flippant view about divorce. Jesus' words was profound and relevant to the culture of his time, just as it is relevant to our culture today. Similarly, our culture has a low view of marriage and is quite flippant about divorce. In Australian law, we passed no-fault divorce in 1975, and the Australian law requires a 12-month separation before you can be divorced. So it's very easy to divorce for all sorts of reasons, like I woke up and I realized I didn't love them anymore. I found someone else. I found someone who makes me happy. She burnt my toast. Whatever reason you want, we have no-fault divorce in Australia. And what this means is that here's the crazy thing. It means that you are actually more locked into your mobile phone contract than you are with your husband and wife. That is the crazy thing about our Australian culture, that you have a 24-month contract 
minimum contract with Telstra and a 12-month minimum contract with your spouse. Jesus wants to restore us to a high, holy view of marriage. Jesus has no room for a flippant or cavalier view of marriage that we have in our culture because our, your marriage is more important. Your marriage is more significant. Your marriage is more sacred than your mobile phone. The question of the religious legalists and moralists is the question, can I get divorced? Do I have the biblical grounds? Is it justifiable for me to get divorced? The question of the gospel heart is, how can I keep from getting divorced? How can I work, trust, and pray to see a marriage healed, to see a marriage restored, to see a marriage renewed by grace? The last teaching in this passage is verse 33 to 37, where Jesus teaches that God's law requires his people to keep their vows and promises. But Jesus goes on to teach that we really ought to be speaking truthfully all the time. So we don't have to say, I promise, I promise, I promise. Disciples of Jesus are to live with integrity, to keep and follow through with their words. We are to not only keep our vows, but every word that come out of our mouths. God's word today is heavy and weighty because this is not in the realm of theory this is our experience maybe someone in your family is divorced maybe you're divorced maybe you're thinking about divorce maybe you've committed adultery so what do we do what if you're divorced what does God say about you are you damaged goods sadly the church can often treat you like that But the answer is that you are not. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin, nor is it a perpetual sin. You are not a perpetual sinner for the rest of your life if you've been divorced. And most importantly, divorce is not your identity. As a Christian, the Bible says sins are what you were. But now in Christ, you have been washed clean. You have been sanctified. Divorce is not who you are. Divorce may be a sin you've committed, but what we What do we do with sin in our lives? We confess our sin, repent of sin, and we receive grace of Jesus Christ and walk in the freedom and wholeness that Jesus Christ offers us by his spirit. Think of the counter that Jesus has in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. She's had five marriages and they all ended in divorce. She's in her sixth relationship. How does Jesus treat that woman? He loves her. He steps towards her with grace and he offers her the one thing that she has been longing for her whole life, living water that would satisfy, relationship with the one man that can truly make her happy. If you're a single person who's desiring marriage, my advice is to open yourself up to listening to your trusted Christian friends about what they think about the person you're thinking of dating or are dating From Amy and my personal experience, what we've seen most with marriages that are in trouble and some end in divorce is that they didn't start their marriage well in the first place. Spiritually, they weren't compatible and united in the first place before marriage. Friends perhaps have raised red flags, but they were ignored. If you want a high view of marriage, then seek to marry someone who has a high view of God, the God of marriage. If you're thinking about getting engaged, it's essential to take premarital counselling. Amy and I run a premarital course for Chapel Hill called As One to prepare engaged couples for God's purposes and design for healthy, God-honoring marriages. 
there was one couple who we counseled in the course where we were able to flag some issues in the dynamics of their relationship. One of the issues that the groom had become a live issue a week before the wedding, where I was also the minister to officiate the wedding. The bride couldn't resolve this issue with the groom, and so she was distraught because she couldn't have the confidence to continue with the wedding. Amy and I came and were called in to counsel them. The groom couldn't see why his issue was such a deal breaker, but I kept pressing into him with the risk of him being offended and derailing the wedding event further. It was very stressful, nerve-wracking, because this was going to be a huge, extravagant wedding. It's one of those Asian weddings. But I kept pressing him into him to the point where he shedded repentant tears with only a few days to the wedding and with a humble and repentant heart, he was able to recognize his own flaws and was able to preliminarily resolve the issue and sought to continue to work on it together in marriage, which gave the bride the confidence to proceed with the wedding with his humble actions. As tough as it was, I pressed into him because personally and pastorally, I would much prefer facilitating a breakup before marriage rather facilitate a breakup in marriage. A good Christian friend would rather help you break up with someone before marriage than help you have a breakup in marriage. If you're single and pursuing marriage, you need honest and loving Christian community to help you start your journey towards marriage well. And likewise, for those who are married, you need to be actively in Christian community to strengthen and support your marriage. Imagine a Christian community where everyone, marrieds and singles, were proactive in protecting and guarding the honour and integrity of marriage. That would be great, right? Wouldn't you want to be part of a community like that where our culture treats marriage as a throwaway institution? We would be salt and light if we were a community like that. That is the kind of community that the gospel creates. That is the kind of community that the people of God are supposed to be. That means in love, we ought to be in each other's business about marriage. If you're in a community group with people who are married, we should assume that it's your responsibility to be up in their marriage, to be asking, how's it going? What is the dynamic of your marriage like? Where are you struggling? Where are you hurting? How can I help in prayer, encouragement, and accountability? We do that not to be nosy, but to be loving because we value and cherish the sacredness of marriage. You might push back and say, we, look, you know, we need some healthy boundaries and privacy. And yes, I agree. I'm not saying everyone at church needs to know the ins and outs of your marriage. We also need to be gentle, tactful, and loving about the way we go about asking about each other's marriage. But I want to gently push back and ask you to remember the vows and commitments on your wedding day. On your wedding day, if you had a Christian wedding, You were not only the ones making commitments to each other, you also consented to your friends and family and the church to make the commitment to not only witness your marriage, but to also support your marriage going forward. On your wedding day, you have consented to letting others get up into your marriage. And so let us fulfill those commitments to love and support you. Allow us to make our words and promises to be true. Don't let your wedding vows be empty words, but also don't let our pledge and commitment be empty words. 
As I've been preparing this sermon this week, it has been heavy on my heart, deeply concerned about the couples in our church being on the fringes of our church community. I say this not to guilt any one of you. I say this as the Lord has laid heavy on my heart to do all that I can do to encourage the whole church family to do all that we can do to protect and cultivate healthy marriages in our church. The greatest fear that pastors have is that couples struggle in their marriage in isolation only until they get an email in their inbox that says, we need to see a counsellor or that says we are now separating. So please don't struggle in the dark. Allow others to speak into you, pray for you before things get worse, before your hearts get hardened. How do we prevent our hearts from being hardened? Divorce was not a command, it was a concession because of man's hard-heartedness. How do we prevent our hearts from being hardened? I've had the privilege of officiating a number of weddings over the years, especially for couples in our church family. And there's a moment in the wedding that I absolutely love. When is it? Uh, It's in when my jokes land. No, it's when the bride comes and I get a front row seat to seeing the happiness and joy in the bride's eyes. And I face and look at the groom and I see the happiness and joy in the groom's eyes and the way they look at each other. Why do I love that moment? It's because Isaiah prophesied, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will God rejoice over you. How the bride and groom look at each other on the wedding day is a glimpse of the way the Lord of the universe, the author and perfecter of your faith, that is how God looks at you. The church is called the bride of Christ. That is how Jesus sees and cherishes us. And that is the scandal of the bride of Christ because the bride of Christ is a spiritual whore. We are the ones who have been unfaithful to God We are the ones that run after the idols of our hearts and bow down and worship at things that we think would make us happy. Yet Jesus pursued us, wooed us, loved us and committed himself to us as spiritual adulterers. He has committed to love you no matter how broken you are, no matter how ugly your sin is, no matter how far you walk away. Jesus promises to be faithful to you. So if you're addicted to porn, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will God rejoice over you. If you're an adulterer, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will God rejoice over you. If you're a divorcee, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will God rejoice over you. If you've been unfaithful, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. If you're being hard-hearted as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. His amazing faithfulness to love and rejoice over you from now and forever will melt the hardness of your heart so that you can walk in faithfulness in his grace by the power of his Spirit. We're going to respond by singing about the faithfulness of our God. And the elders are, and I are going to be available for prayer. If God has stirred in your heart, come for prayer. Confess your sin. Bring it into the light and experience the freedom and grace that Christ offers. Let's pray. 
Father God, your words stand so countercultural to our city. There's so much pain and brokenness that exists in the realm of relationships. God, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to come and step into our relational brokenness and mess, who comes as the specialist, the wonderful counselor when it comes to forgiveness and reconciliation. That he took the initiative of forgiveness. Father, I pray for anyone here today who is feeling condemned and ashamed. I ask that you will lift that shame off and replace it with the grace and mercy of Jesus. I pray for those who are fighting sin. I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that they would put to death sin. I pray for every married person and ask that you would strengthen them to practice forgiveness and reconciliation every day. God, makes us, make us a people so different in this area that people would look at the marriage in this church and say, of course, this is what it's meant to be. We need you, Father. Empower us by your Spirit. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.